It is said that when a Buddha, which is really all of us when we remember who we are, but certainly historically as it speaks to the Buddha, um, Siddhartha Gautama, whatever you call him, that when a Buddha moves through the world, um, what allows them to move in the same way that allows a bird to fly with two wings is one, the activity of wisdom or the knowing heart that sees all things truly as they are. And that's partly what I think the instruction in the equanimity meditation is very much a practice of wisdom. And the other is the motivation or the movement, the natural hearts entering into the world of compassion and with compassion. In a sense, if one were to sum up all of spiritual life, and I think for us at Spirit Rock Center, as it's gradually growing, um, the essence of what we're doing is as simple as breathing in and breathing out. In a way, breathing in and quieting oneself to be here and see what is true, to, to rest in what is true. And then breathing out, which is to extend that or connect that knowing um, to all of life, which is what supports us, what we inter-be with, what we inter-are with. So compassion as the fourth of these divine abodes, the dwelling places of the heart, um, is that which connects us from a place of knowing back into the world and life. Once on a preparation to a great holiday, um, a Hasidic rabbi came home from the house of prayer with weary steps, and his wife greeted him and said, What made you so tired, Rebbe? And he said, It was the sermon. I had to speak of the poor and their many needs for the coming holiday season. Bread and wine, all the necessities, everything is so terribly costly this year. And what did you accomplish with your sermon? His wife went on. Half of what is needed, he answered. You see, the poor are now ready to take. As for the other half, whether those who have are ready to give, I don't know about that yet. Compassion. And in a certain way, um, we are both of those. We are that which gives and that which receives. And only to the extent that we can receive can we give. And only to the extent that we can give do we truly receive. Now it's said that uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion, who is Tara in the uh, Vajrayana tradition, Kuan Yin, the feminine form of um, Avalokiteshvara. If you look over on the wall here to your right, there's a great big this great big painting which comes from a temple in Ladakh, in the Himalayas, is of the um, goddess of compassion. And it shows her in this particular form with 1,000 um, hands and arms and 1,000 pairs of eyes. Um, my daughter came and counted them one day to make sure they were all there. Um, And what this is, this is an archetypal representation, a universal representation of that place in us that sees the suffering of the world and would reach our hands out, would see in every direction and then extend our heart through our hands 
to hold, to touch, to bring mercy or caring to the sorrows of the world. And it's said that the goddess of mercy, Tara, in the Buddhist tradition, arose after the Buddha was seated in the place of enlightenment and awakened and saw the possibility of the complete freedom of heart and being in the world, looked out and saw that, and was utterly free and began to teach and bring that sense of freedom in every dimension. And then after he had done so for a while, he sat again and looked around the world and saw yet still huge numbers of beings who, wanting happiness, engaged often in the very things that created more suffering. Everyone wants happiness in their way, and yet out of confusion and ignorance and, and not knowing, these beings in every realm that he saw were doing the things that were sowing the seeds of pain or suffering. And being unable to help them all, two cheers, tears rolled down the cheeks of the Buddha. And as the tears rolled down his cheeks, they took life and took form, um, feminine form, as, as the goddess of compassion, Tara, white Tara and green Tara. I remember seeing Karmapa, one of the greatest of the uh, Tibetan lamas, the head of the uh, Kagyu sect of Tibetan Buddhism, um, who would do this ceremony of embodying the Buddha of mercy or the Bodhisattva of mercy and place on his head this black crown as a king that was given to him more than a thousand years ago by one of the emperors of China. This is now the 16th Karmapa. I guess it was given to the third Karmapa or something like that. Anyway, he kept it over these lifetimes. And uh, there would be this big fanfare of Tibetan trumpets and cymbals and chanting. Um, And Karmapa, who was a very very kind of easygoing figure in many ways, would sit on the throne after all of that and open the box, that this special case that carried the crown, and take out a crystal rosary and place it on his head and do 108 uh, chants of compassion for all beings of the world with his crystal rosary. And his whole being would change for that time. Um, and he had the saddest expression that you could imagine on his face the sorrow of seeing the sorrows of the world and really letting it touch the heart and the tears that came from that and then the natural movement of mercy. Because life lives on life, we are all connected to one another and we live on the lives of others. We're part of this cycling of life. We know that it's true. And so when we forget that, we can kind of feel separate and fight one another for our share. And when we remember, we can feed one another. Compassion, then, is this mercy for the struggles of life that we all must experience in our own way. And it's really the finding of a freedom of heart, a kindness, even in the midst of difficulty. Anybody not have difficulty in your life? Raise your hand not have struggles. I just want to make sure we're all talking the same language here. Okay. I remember being in India um, with the Dalai Lama for a series of meetings, kind of Buddhist teacher meetings. And um, he would meet with us um, from 10 to 12 and then 2 to, or 1 to 4, or 2 to 4 in the afternoon. And before he met with uh, the group of Buddhist teachers that were having this conference together this particular time, 
he would, after doing his morning prayers and meditations for however many hours, um, he was first meeting with refugees who came out of Tibet. And he would personally try to greet each person who walked over the mountains, over the Himalayas, to escape from the um, communist Chinese army in Tibet. Um, he would try and meet them. And the stories that he heard, and one sometimes would tell, were unbelievable, staggering, and the kind of pain of people being tortured and imprisoned and all those kinds of things. And then walking, people would come over the mountains and you see they'd tied rags to their feet. So they didn't even, didn't even have shoes. And someone asked him in the course of this time, because he would do that and then he would come out and he would meet with us, and he was happy. He would laugh and he was, this tremendous joy would come out of him anyway. And they said, well, don't do you hate the, uh, the Chinese army for what they've done? And he says, no. He said, they've, they've destroyed our monasteries and, you know, destroyed the lives of so many people that I love and destroyed our culture. He said, they've taken away so much. Why should I let them take away my peace of mind? So I'd like us to start with a little bit of a chant as we begin this part of the afternoon and some sitting. And the chant is one of, we'll work with several chants. This is one of the universal chants or or mantras or prayers for compassion. And it's found throughout um, Asia, particularly in the Himalayas. It's a Sanskrit chant. Um, The chant of compassion. And if you go into the mountains in the Himalayas, you see it carved on the rocks and on the uh, and painted on the walls and carved out of stone into the walls of monasteries. The chant is Om, O-M, Om, Mani, M-A-N-I, Padme, P-A-D-M-E, Hum, H-U-M, Hum. And the meaning Om is kind of the universal sound. And Mani... Padme uh, means the jewel is in the lotus and has a lot of different meanings but one simple one is that the jewel of the mind rests in the lotus of the heart that our awareness, our knowing all the things that we conceive and the wisdom that comes to us rests in the heart of compassion our life rests in the heart of compassion and then whom is kind of an exclamation of kind of emphasis um, and one of the things you can know if you ever chant this to yourself or in, with other people is that there is never a time that you can chant Om Mani Padme Hum that there won't be company of others chanting with you at any time, day or night. You can go to the great temple in Bodh Gaya where the Bodhi tree that the Buddha supposedly sat under is and you'll see day and, day and night people with um, their prostration boards, Tibetans and Ladakhis and so forth, um, doing a hundred thousand or a million bows and chanting Om Mani Padme Hung. You can go to the great monasteries in the morning or in the evening and have people chanting it. So when we chant together, we're simply joining a sound of uh, compassion or mercy that is always being... Uh, resonant in the world. And if you go to the great temples, there are these prayer wheels, and inside the prayer wheels are written, Om Mani Padme Hum, one million or ten million times, and then someone is turning these great prayer wheels almost all the time so that they send out the prayers of mercy. 
So we'll start with that. We'll chant and then we'll sit for a few minutes, um, just reconnecting in the stillness with our hearts. Om Mani Padme we chant it now as you say it try to picture or imagine as you chant it that you could send the energy of this prayer or mantra of compassion to someone you know or some place or some circumstances um, where compassion could hold the struggles whether it's to the firefighters and the people who lost their homes in Inverness or whether it is to Sarajevo and Bosnia or wherever it might be, you can chant and as you do, let, or to someone that you love and care for who struggles, um, let the energy of the heart of compassion ride with the chant in your mind and in your heart to touch that place or those people. Om Mani Padme Mani, Pad. 
านีผ่านเมฆโอมโอมมานีผ่านเมฆโอมโอมมานีผ่านเมฆโอม Now very softly. Now just om, oh, 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 oh. Just sit. Let your breath breathe softly in the silence. Let it breathe in and out of the chest or the heart, easily and gently. And with each breath, gently, letting yourself feel or sense the spirit of loving kindness, of peace, of joy that has been growing over this weekend. Breathing gently, letting the heart soften and open with each breath. Resting in kindness. And when the mind wanders off, 
bring it back into the lotus of the heart. When you remember, return back to feel the breath. Loving kindness for yourself and all beings. Or joy. Or resting in a perfect balance. Resting in your own true nature. In your Buddha nature. Return back. The breath of loving-kindness, compassion. It's like a mother holding her child, breathing gently, holding the presence of our breath in our life with kindness, with ease and joy.
Would who's ever sitting near the windows also make sure they're open uh, pretty well, just so with this many people in the room we get the air to circulate? Mm. So over these two days, you worked with the four aspects of the heart um, that are considered the natural state of our being when we are not lost in uh, confusion and fear, the natural state of loving-kindness, the natural state of peace and equanimity, the natural state of joy and well-being, and the natural state of compassion. Just as metta, or loving-kindness of heart, um, is a natural being, natural quality when we're not lost or struggling, compassion, too, arises in a natural way for us. Um, in particular, it is related to sorrow, to the suffering of life as a state. It is said in the Buddhist text to be the quivering of the heart in the face of the pain of another being. Whether it's someone who is hungry or the pain of loss, the pain of fear. Compassion is a kind of healing response, the healing balm of the heart, the movement of the heart in sympathy for the pain of another. Sometime in your life, says Daniel Berrigan, hope that you might see one starved man the look on his face when the bread finally arrives. Hope that you might have baked it or bought it or even kneaded it yourself. For that look on his face, for your meeting his eyes across a piece of bread, you might be willing to lose a lot or suffer a lot or even die some. And it's that kind of natural connection. Has anyone talked so far about the near enemies to these qualities? Was that taught a little bit? So the near enemy to loving kindness is attachment. The near enemy to equanimity is indifference. It's masquerades as equanimity, but it's really a pulling back from the world. It's based on fear rather than opening in the midst of the world. The near enemy to compassion is pity. Oh, that poor person over there, they suffer as if somehow they were different, or you were seeing them in the zoo, right, and seeing how they were suffering, but you were some other species. Um, in true compassion, there's a sense of the pain that is our human pain, that we share our human birthright as much as anything, and our connection in it. That I feed the hungry, forgive an insult, love my enemy, these are great virtues, says Carl Jung. But what? if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of offenders are all within me, that I stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved, what then? So as Thich Nhat Hanh writes about in his poetry, I am the young girl who is raped by the sea pirates, thrown in the sea, and I'm also the pirate. This is the place of compassion. It gets very hard to know who's doing what to whom after a while. There's a 
a friend in this community that I know who came to this country some years ago from living in Russia. I always thought of him as a Russian, a Russian immigrant. I asked him what it felt like to be a Russian in America and so forth. And he said, you know, it's so funny, when I lived in Russia, I wasn't a Russian. He said, because in Russia, everyone has to have a passport like a, as their identity card. And on it is written what your nationality or identity is. And there are certain people who are Russians, but he happened to be Jewish, so his card said Jewish, and he wasn't treated as a Russian. Other people's cards would say, you know, Turkoman or, or Uzbeki or, or uh, from some other people that they would consider non-Russians. And that's who you were. You were an Uzbeki, you know, or you were a Jew or you were a gypsy or whatever it happened to be. And he said, so all the years that I grew up and lived there, I was not a Russian. And I wasn't allowed to do certain things that only Russians could do and so forth. But now I come here and to everybody, I'm a Russian, right? I came from Russia. <laughs> so who are you? You know, really. Those are just the names. And what happens to allow compassion to arise in its natural way is that it is a shift of identity. It happens in the moment that we let go of a sense of separateness and there that what sometimes is called the body of fear that we carry around, not enough, and protect ourselves and be a certain way so that everyone will, you know, no one will hurt us or people will reward us and all those kinds of things where we feel insufficient. The moment that we step out of that and remember who we really are, who were you before you were born, what is that true nature that's there? You look in the eyes of young children you know, especially if they're children who've had some beautiful circumstances, they haven't been traumatized in some way. And there's just this spontaneous, natural being that's gorgeous. That's everybody. From Nelson Mandela, he says, Our worst fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. We ask ourselves, well, who am I to be brilliant, beautiful, talented? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God, and your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the spirit of the divine within us. It's not just in some of us, but in all of us, in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other per people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. You all, probably most of you have heard me tell the story of the woman who did Ramdas's service retreats over those weeks in Oakland and one day raised her hand and said, you know, I discovered on my way to work most every day, for months, I've been dropping coins in the cup of this homeless man. And then, and as we've done our, our retreat together on service, I realized I never let myself look at him closely. I just put the coins in and walk by. And he kind of nods. We have a nodding acquaintanceship. And I realized I'd never looked. And then I began to wonder why. So this time, you know, as I was passing him, I began to look at him. And I realized the reason I hadn't looked is if I ever really looked in his eyes, he would probably end up on my living room floor next week, living in my home. That's what I mean 
by our natural compassion. And so what we do often is we don't look because we're afraid that our heart will get overwhelmed. We avoid the sorrows of the world. We keep ourselves busy, the addicted society. So Brecht, Bertolt Brecht wrote, what times are these that an innocent conversation about trees, that used to be an innocent conversation, it isn't anymore, that was in the 30s, that an innocent conversation about trees see, is such, oh, is such a crime because it includes so much silence about so many outrages. We become afraid if we start to look at compassion. We become afraid that our heart would be overwhelmed if we really let ourselves open to the world. And so much of our life in society is designed to keep us busy with things that shield us from that. And yet it's there, isn't it? I mean, we, you all know it. It's here in the room. You sit in this beautiful fall day at Spirit Rock in this beautiful valley. And yet we know every time we drive our car and use the oil that it does, it affects the environment in the ozone hole, right? And it was the purpose of the uh, Kuwait-Iraq war where a quarter of a million people died, um, mostly to protect our oil resources. Um, and we know it when we drive or when we fly, that we're connected with everyone else. and We live in these beautiful conditions in some way at a certain cost to the world. The United States of America has for most of this past decade been the number one exporter of weapons in the face of the earth ever. We export billions of dollars of killing machines to pay for the way we live, to import oil and uh, stereos and cars and all those nice things. That's our big product. It is. And um, the conversion money that was voted for the Department of Defense, Congress later voted that it could be used either to convert military factories and facilities to civilian use, or for the promotion of our defense goods overseas. All that conversion money. So we could sell it to more people. And then we wonder why we're not safe. And that's in us, as is Bosnia. Everybody knows and keeps track and doesn't know what to do. And the growing homelessness in our society and what still continues in Burma or Guatemala or the prisons of Tibet, the deforestation, the racism in the society. We know, I mean, the, the, the trial, whatever you will call that, mostly just showed how alive racism is in our culture, how much pain there is from it. Imagine being a little child and growing up and one day realizing that people hate you, distrust you, um, are threatened by you simply by whatever color your skin or your eyes are. How that mu- what a shock that must be. And yet, many, many, many people in the society on the earth, that's their experience of life. All African gorillas, the grizzly bear, all species of jaguar, the giant sable antelope, the giant armadillo, 
three species of kangaroo and five of leopard, all orangutans and all species of rhinoceros, eight species of whale, six of wolf, seven species of gazelle and thirteen of monkeys, Asian lions, twenty species of pheasant, fifteen species of turtles, eight species of crane, twelve of crocodile, the Indian python. You know what I'm reading? The endangered species list. We all know that as well. And this is our earth. What will it be like to have grandchildren and say this is what an elephant looked like and not be able to show them? And it's not just globally, the fact that there are still, probably today, there are 20 or 30 wars and revolutions where people are shooting and torturing and killing each other right now on the earth. And today there are people hungry by the millions whose main longing in life is to have enough food for today. And here we are, we're all these people and we go in the supermarkets and they're filled like an emperor's uh, banquet. So it's worldwide, and it's our own, our own loss and betrayal, fear, confusion, depression, addiction. Somebody came to me during the break and said, oh, people were so open from Joanna and joyful and happy. I said, oops, I've got to do compassion now. (laughs) Oh, well. But it's true, isn't it? These are also part of our human experience. Anyone not have, not know these. They're a part of human life. We have all been awakened with Buddha and crucified with Jesus and killed and robbed with Genghis Khan or Stalin. And it's all a part of us. And the first noble truth of the Buddha is that in this life there is suffering. It is so. And for us to live from the heart, for us to have a courage to live what we most deeply value in the world, we must see this with our eyes open and our hearts open. And yet there's a tremendous amount of grief that that entails. I go into the 7-Eleven, grab a cold sandwich and a soda. A man in a suit is squeezing ketchup onto a hot dog. Two clerks are laughing behind the counter. Then a man in a grimy t-shirt and jeans walks toward the cash register, followed by a small boy with silky blonde hair. Looks about three. The boy stops beside the candy tray, picks up Tootsie Roll. I have, Daddy. He holds it up. Man turns. His eyes are dazed but fierce. What the fuck you want now, he says. The man with the hot dog squirts ketchup on his cuff. The clerk's hush turn away. Man looks at the boy. You can't have any shit. You can't have any till you learn some shit. He places six-pack of beer and asks for a pack of camels. The clerk hands over without looking at him. The boy bends to the floor, picks up a scrap of paper and turns it over and over in his small fingers. Fumbling with his money, the man puts a few bills change on the counter and looks back at the boy. You listen to me or I have to knock some fucking shit into you. We freeze. We wait. Finally, one of the clerks slides the money off the counter. He doesn't even count it. The man picks up his purchases, holds them towards the boy. This is my shit. See, we're here to get my shit. And we watch them leave the store but no one speaks and we don't even look at one another. What do you do in the face of the 
suffering of innocence? Because it's all over. What do you do in the face of the sorrows of the world? That is really the question of compassion. How can we not feel? If we don't feel, what we get is deadness. We're shut down. We're afraid we're not big enough. <laughs> this is from Ramdas. He says, to me, that is the power of a Buddha, of Christ, whoever. Just one clear person who isn't vulnerable. I don't underestimate the power of the human heart. When I look at the human heart, that link, that doorway, I see an institution that makes the Pentagon look like kids' toys. And really that's what has to be called on to meet the immensity of sorrow and the repetitive circumstances with the greatness of the heart, with the great heart of a Buddha. And that is what changes our lives and the world. That's what will save us. Sometimes in India, one learns it from a teacher through what's called the glance of mercy. You just meet some being. I remember being with this teacher in Calcutta, my teacher Deepama, this wonderful old grandmother. There were some times when she would look at me and hug me. Bengalis like to hug, I'm happy to say. And she was tiny. She'd come over and give me this hug and I would just get drunk from the kind of energy of her being in her heart. Ramana Maharshi, whose picture I put on the altar, he's one of the people that's most inspired me. He taught often just with silence, with very few words. And people would come and they would pour out their struggles and talk about their sorrows and suffering. And he would just look at them with mercy. And they would see that which was really what they'd been longing for for their whole life. Somebody who loved them as deeply as they existed. And their lives would be changed. So this afternoon we're beginning to evoke the goddess of compassion. We ask that Tara enter the room in all these different forms. And for mercy and compassion to arise, the ground of it is that we allow ourselves to feel our own sorrows and grief, that it's part of life. What do you do when you're in the supermarket and some kid is being abused, huh? Like I read, it's so painful. And yet if you say something to that father, what will happen? You know, 15 minutes later he'll be out in the car with a kid and he said, you know, you behaved wrong and that and you made somebody talk to me and he'll beat him worse. So what do you do? Someone has an answer back there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Did you? Yeah. What happened? And the guy you know, kind of abruptly walked out and said, I heard you. And uh, I felt like I just did whatever I could do. And... It's so hard. And the people that I know, I have a friend who made a vow never to witness that kind of abuse without saying something. But she said she, wouldn't, she didn't make the vow. She'd been abused herself. She didn't make the vow until she realized that the person who probably had the most pain in that situation was the perpetrator. 
that that was the person. Their actions came out of an enormous degree of pain. And almost universally it was because they were betrayed, beaten, abandoned and abused themselves. How much mercy do we have for one another? And kindness. In Hawaii, there's that remarkable temple, Pua Honua, Ohona, now the, the place of refuge where on the great rocky coast of the big island, all these big dark lava rocks and huge 10-foot-wide walls, where if you had broken a taboo in the society or even killed someone, as long as you could get into the temple there, it was the temple of forgiveness. They would meet you and put you through a process of absolution and forgive you and send you back. And I went there and I thought, wow, does this place still work? You know, can I still do it? And then tried to imagine what it would be if we built those instead of prisons. I mean, not that we don't, may not need prisons too, some. I don't want to be naive. But that we spend more on prisons than we do on our s- school system. That we have in the state of California the largest population of people incarcerated in the Western world. What are we doing? So to find compassion, we have to let our eyes open and our hearts open. And there's a certain kind of grief that comes. I know the place in America that in some ways has captured the spirit of this compassion and forgiveness as a temple more than any other is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It's one of the few places you can go in public where, where grown men will cry in this country and weep. And people go and, and they leave things. The Smithsonian now has two big buildings full of things left at the altar because everyone knows it's a temple even though it's supposed to be a war memorial. And there are notes and candles and teddy bears and, and service medals. You know, I go down came down today to pay respects to two good friends of mine. Go down and visit them sometime. They're on panels 42E, lines 22 and 26. I think you'll like them. People who go and see, you know, one another really honestly. If I could, I would lead each person in hand past this monument, make them read every name and imagine every life that was lost and cut short. Every other mother... I would bring down here. Your name is on a black wall in D.C. I'm sorry to say it's a little below ground, kind of how the enemy was. You overlook a nice green, my friend, a place like where we used to play football back home. A lot of people walk by every day. You can tell which ones are the vets. We're the ones who don't have to ask about the type of stone used to make the wall or the 58,000 names. We just stand and look and weep not caring who sees us cry, just like no one cared when we died. Imagine if our way of moving in the world was of compassion, to meet each being and to see their struggles or sorrow and to touch them with our heart as is natural to us. It would take a lot of forgiveness. You can't really let the compassion be there or the loving-kindness without a profound forgiveness for all the things that are wrong, all the betrayals that have happened to us and others. Forgiveness is a part of it. 
But if we don't forgive, what we get is Bosnia and Croatia and Serbia again and again and again, and the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Hatfields and the McCoys and and um, the repetition of sorrow without end. Compassion and mercy or forgiveness is simply that willingness to say it ends here. I won't participate in keeping the sorrows and the hatred going. I will stop it. I will respond with compassion. And we all need it. We all need forgiveness for ourselves because we've all betrayed others, caused suffering. And when I speak of forgiveness, I don't mean condoning, oh, that it's all right, it happened. You may say, never again. I'll put my body in the way of this happening, harm to another person. I will not allow it, but I will forgive. Because forgiveness is really saying, I won't put anyone out of my heart in the end, not a single being. It's for ourselves, really. Because you don't want to live with a closed heart, because the pain of hatred is too great. And it might be a long process. You can't paper it over. Okay, I forgive. It might be a year of rage and outrage and a, a year of grief and sadness and remembering and reworking it. It takes its own time. But in the end, it's forgiveness that allows us to be open, to let go of the past. One more letter. Dear Sir, for 22 years... I have carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day we faced one another on the trail in Chulai. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me for so long, holding your AK-47, and yet you would not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was just reacting the way I was trained to kill the enemy. So many times over the years, I've stared at your picture and your daughter's. And there's a picture here, this man with his young daughter, that I took from your body. Each time my heart and guts would burn with pain. I have two daughters myself now, I understand. Now I see you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can respect the importance that life must have held for you. I suppose that is the only reason why I am still alive today, because of how much you treasured life. It is time, finally, for me to continue the life that was given me and release my guilt and pain. Forgive me, sir. I leave your picture here to rest. Forgive me. Twenty-two years. So the tears that the Buddha weeps are the tears for us all, for the confusion and the things that we do that create suffering. And they become the motivation for our life, for our action, to move through the world and to minimize suffering, to bring a sense of mercy and beauty in the world. Compassion is as natural to us as our breath if we let ourselves feel it. Clarence Darrow, the great, the great lawyer in that trial, said, given a child falling in a river, a 
man in a burning house, a woman fainting in the street, you will find as much mercy from a group of convicts as from any group of millionaires. It's not different. It's there in everyone. Charles Leakey, I heard him give a talk recently. He said if they found some fossils that were early hominoids, a million years old in Africa, and what they found was several of them who in this one kind of mass burial place which had broken bones that had healed back together. And he said what it showed was that one or two million years ago, someone broke their bones, their leg bones, some way, and they couldn't walk and they couldn't hunt, and someone else cared for them and fed them two million years ago. He said, so you need to understand that it's built in to what it means to be a human being. And it comes out in all these extraordinary ways. On our refrigerator for a long time, we had the picture of that Chinese man with his two shopping bags. Remember, standing in front of the tanks that were moving toward Tiananmen Square. He was just on his way back from the marketplace, and he, he stood there carrying his grocery bags, and he just wouldn't move. Or the man who used to go out and play cello in the square in Sarajevo every afternoon. or probably almost every parent that ever lived. (laughs) It's not far away, you know. And it comes in a moment. You start simply with the ones you love for your compassion, with your children, your lovers, and then you let it expand to all children and to the mothers who can't feed their children. Imagine, or the fathers who have hungry babies, or to the street children hundreds of thousands of them in the world, or to friends who are sick or in trouble, and you let the sense of mercy and caring grow until it even embraces your enemy, as the Dalai Lama says, my friends, the enemy, my greatest teachers. So that there's a group of young Tibetan nuns called the Gary 14 who are in prison outside of Lhasa, They were sent to prison because they chanted in public. Some of them 15, 17, 18 years old. And because they said their prayers and chants out loud in public, they were put in prison for seven years. And they managed to smuggle a tape out of prison with their chanting to let people know they were still chanting. But it was found out and their sentence was increased. And they sent out, there's a film that was made of this. It says, called My Friends the Enemy. Picture being carried away in the night and hunger, endless nights, beatings, electric shock. Your crime? You wanted to recite your prayers. You wanted to live a holy life, to honor your teachers. What then? If you survive, if they do let you out, They make you grow your hair, take your robes off, force you to marry. What do you do? What can you do? You pray for the enemy. They send a note out saying, we are fine in here. We thank you all, those of you who pray for us. We're surviving well. We remained united. Don't worry about us. We continue to sing.
So let's do the first compassion meditation and then we'll take a break. Why don't you stand up first just to stretch your bodies, but stay silent as you do. Maybe I'll play a piece of music for you and then we'll do the first forgiveness and compassion meditation. This is um, Bobby McFerrin singing with himself. recognize it um, it's the 23rd psalm a, a different version the Lord is my shepherd I have yourself sit comfortably at ease. And we'll do two practices together. First, the traditional 
practice of forgiveness, which is a recitation that one can do over and over. You'd be given a practice of this kind in a monastery and do it several times a day for three months or six months, maybe 500 times. And the teacher would say, well, how's it going? So it's to understand that it's really a practice. Sometimes you don't feel it or you feel it's opposite. You realize how you're just not ready to forgive it all or how bitter something feels to you. And that's also part of it. You need to hold whatever arises with understanding and compassion or mercy. We'll do a forgiveness practice and just let it be what it is. And then a simple practice of compassion, which just as the loving-kindness is a well-wishing intention of the heart of be filled with loving-kindness or have well-being, be happy, compassion is the breath of the heart extending to hold the sorrows of others and wish that they be free of that. May you be free from suffering. May you be well. Seeing the struggles of beings, may you be free from that. So let your eyes close gently. Bring yourself back just to feel the breath easy in the heart and the chest. as if you could breathe in and out through the heart. And we begin with the simple practice of forgiveness in three directions. First, there are many ways in which I have hurt and harmed others, knowingly and unknowingly. I've betrayed them, caused them pain, Many times I've been the source of the suffering of other beings. As I breathe gently, I remember these now and feel the sorrow I carry from this. Picture, remember, sense in your body. There are many ways in which I've hurt and harmed others through thought or word or deed. I remember these now out of my fear and pain, out of anger or confusion and ignorance, the suffering I've caused others. And feeling this now, remembering, I ask their forgiveness and mercy. May I be forgiven. 
May I be forgiven. Forgive me. And extend that forgiveness to yourself for all that you have done. You may feel sorry, you may deeply wish that you hadn't. You may commit yourself to living in a different way. But for now, what is finished, the suffering you have caused, offer yourself forgiveness. Forgive yourself. This is the second direction. There are so many ways that I've hurt or harmed myself as I've harmed others. Knowingly and unknowingly betrayed myself, abandoned myself. hurt myself. I remember these now and feel the sorrow I carry. Let yourself feel and sense, picture the many ways that you have harmed yourself, betrayed yourself. There are so many ways I've forgotten and abandoned myself that I've hurt myself as well as others. I feel these now, what I carry. Remember the pain that I've had from my confusion and fear out of my ignorance and sorrow. And I offer myself forgiveness I forgive myself. I forgive myself. To hold yourself with mercy, this human being here, kindness. And finally, the third direction. There are many ways in which others have hurt and harmed me. So many times we have been abused or hurt, abandoned or betrayed. Let yourself remember and feel the sorrows you carry. So many ways in thought or word or deed 
that others have hurt us. And feel what you still carry of that pain. So many times we have each felt that. Breathing gently in the heart. Feeling the sorrow that has come to us from others, knowingly and unknowingly, out of their pain and confusion, out of their anger and fear and ignorance. And to the extent that you are ready or able to, offer your forgiveness. I forgive you. I release you. I offer my forgiveness for the past. To the extent that your heart is ready, offer forgiveness. I will not put you out of my heart. You too, I forgive. doesn't mean you have to see them again or be with them. It is a release of the hatred of the heart, the bitterness. I offer my forgiveness. And then, with the forgiveness having cleared the heart some, let us extend the meditation to compassion. Continuing to breathe gently, feel your breath in and out of the heart, sitting comfortably. Move if your body asks for it. Remember that compassion or mercy is the heart's response to sorrow. As you breathe, feel your own breath in life and how much you treasure your life. Defend yourself from difficulties and guard yourself from sorrows. And yet you can also feel that you, as all of us, each of us, has a certain measure of suffering, a certain measure of sorrows in the world. So as you breathe gently, first feel a sense of mercy for your struggles. May I be filled with mercy and compassion for myself. All your struggles. May I be filled with mercy and compassion with each breath. Feel that sense of kindness and compassion as if you could hold yourself, your struggles, 
like holding a child who is frightened or in pain. May I be filled with mercy and compassion for myself. And feeling the unwanted sufferings of your life, the traditional phrase of compassion, may I be free from suffering. May I be released or free from suffering. Wishing yourself well. May I be free from suffering. Free from pain. Mercy and kindness. Can you hold your life with compassion? This breath and this body, from the feet and limbs all the way through torso and the head, this body you've been given. May I hold this life with great mercy. May I be free from suffering, free from pain. Now picture someone you love a lot, someone you care for. Let them into your heart. And be aware of the measure of sorrows that they carry in their life, their struggles, fears. And as you picture or remember them, offer your compassion with each breath. As you breathe out, may you be free from suffering. May you be filled with mercy and compassion. Feel the heart's movement for their struggles. Dear one, May you be free from suffering, a well-wishing. May you be filled with mercy and compassion. As if you could hold this loved one, hold their heart in your hands. Picture another being you love, add them. One or two more. Be aware of their lives, their beauty and their struggles. Their measure of sorrows. May you be filled with mercy and compassion. And may you be free from suffering. 
May you be filled with mercy for yourself and others. Let your heart soften and open with each breath. Let the heart of compassion extend from your own Buddha nature so that each time you breathe in, it's as if you can breathe in or feel the sorrows of others, the children of people you know, those in distress, the people in Inverness, the fire, those who are hungry or homeless. Breathing in and seeing that image, feeling the sorrows, and breathing out mercy. May you be free from suffering, each that you picture. May you be filled with mercy and compassion. No being wants to suffer. All seek happiness. each that you picture breathing out. May you be filled with mercy and compassion. May you be free from suffering. (coughs) Wishing well. Let your compassion open, extend it further around the world. Beings everywhere, struggling, humans, hungry, warfare, tribal conflict, hatred. May they be free from suffering. May their hearts be filled with mercy and compassion. free from pain. Letting the sense of compassion extend out with every breath as if you were the mother or father of the world, as if you could take the earth in your arms and hold it in your lap, breathing out kindness and compassion for every being. with the breath in, letting the sorrows of the world touch the heart, transformed in the heart like fire, and breathing out compassion.
You see it as if you are the Buddha in the center of the world. The great heart of a Buddha is there in you, breathing gently, holding the sorrows of the world in your heart as you breathe in, and breathing out your compassion and mercy. May they be well. May they be free from suffering and pain. May they be well. a tenderness of heart for all that lives. May they be well, free from suffering and pain. May they be filled with mercy and compassion. And then gently let your eyes open without words and look around you a bit and see all the other human beings with their struggles and beauty and wish them well, compassion for their sorrows. May they be well. May they be filled with mercy for themselves and all of life. May they be free of suffering. A beautiful thing to wish for another being. What I'd like, it's such a beautiful afternoon, is for us to go out in just a minute for some walking meditation. We'll take half an hour or so outside. You know, when Mother Teresa came to San Francisco area on one of her visits, she's kind of the... uh, world's most public saint, I guess, or something along with the Dalai Lama. One of the visits that she made was to San Quentin Prison, which is just down the road. Um, And before she left, she said, I really want to ask you to do something for me, to the men who were in there. It was mostly men she was talking to. So she said, I want something from you. And they said, yes, what what do you want? And she said, "Um, I want you to pray for me, she said. Imagine that. I want you to pray for I want to know, she said, that when I sit in, you know, my home in Calcutta, in the place, the monastery where I live, know that you are praying for me and for the work that we do. It's quite extraordinary. She didn't ask, she asked them for what she knew was in there, for that. So as you go for your walk, stay with the meditation of compassion, wishing well and filled with mercy or compassion, others, or free from suffering, you can find your own phrase. 
And if you like, since this is the fourth of these four Brahma Viharas, if the others come in, may you be happy, peaceful, and so forth, you can let those phrases come in as well. And walk and let yourself, let your eyes be open, not sort of this downcast sort of zombie walk or whatever. You know what they call it, Green Gulch, the kids say, when we used to come to the Vipassana, people would come, they'd say, oh, it's the night of the living dead is coming, right? <laughs> it's not that. Let yourself look around. Wish well to the trees. You know, if you see birds that go overhead or in the forest or, or, or animals or other people walking by, as, if you, as you meet each being, even through the glance of your eyes or the sense of them moving, that there's some sense as if you could bow to them and offer your heart. You too, my brother, my sister, my uncle, my aunt. You know, we're supposed to have been. Everybody has been around this wheel. It's said so much that this entire room was at one time or other your mother, everyone was, and your uh, father and your, your children. We've all been that to everyone. So it's really wishing your uh, relatives well, right? And in other cultures, it's well understood, and they don't speak of anyone unless it has that kind of um, honorific with it um, from the family, you know, auntie mayor and uncle uh, president and, you know, grandfather general or whatever it is, um, and uh, all the rest of it. There's a sense that we really are family, and we are. It's absolutely true. So go out with your family, right? It's not as tough as your family of origin, I know, right? <laughs> Go out with your family in the meadows, or we'll take half an hour, ring the bell, with tenderness in the heart, and walk. And like Mother Teresa asked them in San Quentin to pray for her, do your prayers for one another, wish each other well, be filled with mercy and compassion, be free from suffering, and we'll come back together. Thank you.
comes, it's compassion. So you can see that there's uh, as many beings as there are, there are as many forms of compassion. And you can find an image uh, that, that really resonates with your own heart, that represents compassion. And then imagine that that being that goes with you um, to difficult circumstances or sits there with you or can be called upon, which is to say it really reminds you of who you really are. It's like the Hindu chant of the children in the womb that sing, um, uh, don't let me forget who I am. And then the first song that comes after birth is, oh dear, I've forgotten already. Right? So the, it's a, the fact that we forget is a remarkable thing. And then we remember. And really that's all this whole weekend has been about, is just remembering what's true and what you've known since before you were born. You know it's true. And then we get caught up in things and forget. And then there's that moment, oh yeah, here it is again. So I want us to do another meditation. Oh yes, please. I just wanted to share something really brief that I picked please. up Sylvia's book and like so much. I don't remember exactly where it was, but she observes that one doesn't have to learn how to be compassionate. The one only has to remember. Sylvia in her book <laughs> writes that one doesn't have to learn how to be compassionate. One simply has to remember. So that's lovely. So it's that natural. So I want you to find a partner now for a paired exercise, if you will. And uh, just can be anybody. And if you don't have someone sitting near you to be a partner, raise your hand and look around for other hands that are up in the air. And there will be a hand up. But don't talk yet. If you can do this without words, please. Who's still looking? Put your hands up. Somebody there in the middle. Somebody over here. Who else is still looking? Someone standing up. Yeah, stand up if you're looking. Kind of. Okay, here's another person looking. Who else doesn't have? One more. Anyone else still needing a partner? There. Okay, you too. Now, I'll read you a poem before we begin, and then I'll tell you what the exercise is. It's a poem from Galway Canal called St. Francis and the Sow where he writes, The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers eventually from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and touch it as lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow, and told her in words and in touch blessings of the earth upon the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of her tail, the long, perfect loveliness of sow. (laughs) It's that offering of blessing with your compassion. So this is what I'd like. I'd like you to ask each other a question. Um, first one of you will start and ask the question and the other will answer and you'll do it for five or seven minutes and then we'll switch and the other person will be asking and the second person will be answering. Um, So it's a repeating question and as the question is asked, answer whatever first comes and then they'll ask the question again. It's actually going to be two questions and you can alternate them. Here's the questions. First question is, what most brings forth your compassion for yourself. 
And then the second question, after they answer that, they'll say, eating ice cream does. And you'll say, thank you, whatever. And you'll say, the second question is, what most brings forth your compassion for others? And then they might say, oh, getting a good night's sleep brings it forth. Or, you know, reading the, the Buddha, or sitting in meditation, or not sitting in meditation, whatever. Um, so the answers, they can be serious or silly or whatever comes of you. It might be that someone asks, what most brings forth your compassion for yourself is leaving Spirit Rock and not having anyone keep asking me these dumb questions, right? <laughs> That's my... So it can just let it come out of you as it does. And your, your task, the, the questioner, is these two questions. What most brings forth your compassion for yourself? And you answer. And the alternate one, what most brings forth your compassion for others? And you answer. And then they ask again, what most brings forth your compassion for yourself? And you do that for a while and let the answers come and just hear what you say. And then after five or seven minutes, we'll stop and we'll switch. And you, the asker and answerer, will reverse. Any questions about the instructions? So this is your way of offering blessings like St. Francis. By hearing, by listening with compassion. Okay, so go ahead, Ben, please. So finish up and just sit for a moment in silence when you finish. Staying in silence, just sit for a moment. And then without words, either take your partner's hand or place your hand on your partner's heart if you wish to. Just for a moment, that connection of another living being that you listen to, learn from. And thank your partner in whatever way you like and return back. What did anyone um, learn from that, or what did you see about your, what brings forth your compassion for yourself or others? Anyone? Please? I guess after a while I felt like you meant 
looked into it, I felt like I was kind of scraping from the bottom. <laughs> scraping the bottom of the barrel, huh? Thank you. Just an easier way to be. Isn't it true? Please. What kind of answers would be the same? Thank you very much. Someone else in the back, yeah. So for you, he's become a symbol for that suffering. You know, and it's, it's, as you speak, um, it, it's not to be known by you or anyone whether he is guilty or whether he is innocent. Um, but no matter what happened, he suffers enormously. There's, no matter what it was, he has his great measure of suffering. Would be, um, that's a, it would be interesting if that were a more uh, universal response in America <laughs> than the other kinds of things that have happened with it. So seeing when you're lost, when you're in the grip of all of those struggles, that evokes your compassion. Thank you. Yes, please. When I'm not gripped by fear and self-protection, compassion comes naturally. Please. For me, it's when I can solidly name the fear that's in the way, that's blocking the feeling of compassion. 
When I can name accurately, when I can see and name the fear that is in the way of my feeling, then the compassion comes naturally. Thank you. Please. So for some it can be that, the extreme of certain circumstances. I was in a Reikian therapy for a while in, in the East Coast, and the person I was working with said, you're pretty armored. I said, yeah, so what's new? He said, um, uh, he said what, what time of the day would it be hardest for you to come to therapy? I said, early in the morning. He said, fine, that's when I want you to come. <laughs> come really early, I think we'll get you when your defenses are down, sort of groggy and walk in there. It can be that, but it also can be its opposite. I picked up as I listened a little bit to people speaking. Some people say, when I'm rested, when I've cared for myself, then I feel like I can really be there for others. Um, So there's also that balance, that when I've completely lost it, it's hard for me to be compassionate. And when I remember to take enough of a rhythm in my life to sit quietly or to nourish my physical body or, or nourish my heart, then I can more easily really respond to the world around. It's like this passage from Thomas Merton where he warns to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself in too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. So it's really finding that rhythm or that place in whatever way it is that brings us back to ourself or that opens us beyond the body of fear or the kind of defenses that you spoke about to become vulnerable. For some it will be walking in the ocean and for some it will be something else that opens them. You know, it's almost, almost time to end the weekend, just 10 or 15 more minutes uh, to go. Mm. Mostly, as it was very beautifully reminded from Sylvia's book, mostly what the weekend is about, has been about, is not to teach you something, but really to remember, to reawaken that, which is natural to us. It helps often in that process of living from the deepest place of our knowing, from our Buddha nature, to nourish it in a variety of ways. Some of it can be, as I just said, by periods of silence or daily meditation or walking in the woods or by the ocean. For some people, it's community, as one person mentioned. Tears in her eyes came when she said, I feel so uh, inspired or held by this small uh, community that's begun to sit together where I am. Um, It's true for almost everyone that we cannot do it alone that awakening is not an individual matter, it's really a community affair. Um, So that may mean coming to retreats or sitting with others or whatever form you find that connects you with the spirit, 
whenever two or more are gathered in his name, is really um, a deep uh, truth to come together with others. So one's own practice, uh, quiet and solitude at times, uh, um, what nourishes you, the music, the arts, turning on the news, turning off the news, you'll know. Basically, it's staying in touch in conversation with one's own heart. And you can ask your heart and it will tell you. We forget that that is, um, that is a basic conversation. Sometimes people forget to talk to their bodies also until we get sick and it sort of reminds you, hey, remember me? You know, or we get exhausted. But it's the same with the heart. So all these practices are reminders of how to touch back to that place of our own knowing. You can use them as practices in your daily life. You can do forgiveness every day if you, do, if you have a regular meditation practice. It's a wonderful way to start. Or loving kindness. Or you can do loving kindness or compassion in traffic jams. You know, there you are going over the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, and you're by the Waldo Tunnel and it's three miles wall-to-wall, you know, cars. And you could sit and be irritated or you could sit there and start to do metta, loving kindness and compassion for all the people in the traffic jam and how they are and so forth. And pretty soon it feels really different. It's like you're there with all these other beings awakening together. You you can do it in the dentist office, you know, or in line in the supermarket. Um, Or as you travel. Or walking down the street. It's quite a wonderful thing. So walk down the street. And I don't mean be weird or let anybody know you're doing it. Don't look weird. Just walking... (laughs) I mean, you look weird enough, basically. That's really what I mean. Walking down the street, being yourself, but blessing each person as you go by. May you be well, you know, or may you be free of suffering, or may you be happy, or extending your joy to each person. That you really can make it a, a way that your heart moves, a direction that your mind goes. Um, and after a while, it becomes your way. So this old Tibetan Lama that visited us and friends in Boston was taken to this great big Boston aquarium and went around to every tank. He couldn't read the signs in English that said, do not touch the glass. So he would go tap on the glass and and kind of <laughs> chant to them. And I said, what are you doing, Rinpoche? Oh, I'm trying to get their attention. And then I'm blessing them that they might awaken. You know, the crustacean, the sea creatures. And imagine that being your way of moving through the world to, as you encounter each being to offer your blessings. May you be well. May you awaken. May you be held in compassion. It's not really very far-fetched. There are lots of people that do it. I even know some. <laughs> not claiming it for myself at all, mind you. But, um, but it grows. And it's wonderful. I mean, what are you going to plant in your garden? You might as well plant joy, loving-kindness, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, peace. Hmm. And then take it out into the world, as Merton says, not by running around and trying to solve everything, but really solving things one at a time. You will know if you're quiet and you speak with your heart. What are your particular gifts? Each of us has certain gifts. What are your particular capacities? And it may be to work with a young child, you know, and that young child having this one person in their life that may completely turn their life around. It may be to plant gardens. It may be to work um, 
in the inner city or with the homeless or with people who can't read, and it may be to do business in a conscious way. may even be politics. Buddha have mercy upon you for that, right? <laughs> and Allah and all of the rest of them as well. You'll know if you're quiet and you listen and you ask, what is your... It might be literally healing or it might be just, um, you know, the simplest thing. The way that you drive, the way that you eat, the way that you are in the world, your presence. I know when I go into the city over the Golden Gate Bridge, once in a while there'll be a toll taker that kind of is is like the Buddha in drag, right, in the toll booth. And they'll come and they not only take your money, but it's like they offer you blessings as you enter the city of San Francisco. And it's fantastic. My daughter... When we go in, she has this thing now where we have to pay for the car behind us, right? And so we do. We give them the $6. And then she waits and she says, slow down, Daddy. I want to see what their face, you know. And she particularly likes to get kind of um, distracted and sour-looking people in three-piece suits in the cars behind us, right? And do that. And then they look and they're kind of amazed, you know. And she's waving out the back window. Make your day. That kind of loving-kindness and metta and compassion and respect, everybody loves it. Your children love it. Your animals love it. You know, the trees in your neighborhood are happy to have your respect, the people that you work with. And it's said that your dreams become sweet and people sense the loving-kindness in you. Your health becomes better. You wake and contented. You fall asleep more easily. There's this whole list of blessings. Did, did Gil read through them from the... Yeah, all these... And if you fall off a cliff, a tree will always be there to catch you. That's what it says. I don't know. Mm. So I read you one more story. It is said that when a Buddha, which is really all of us when we remember who we are, but certainly historically as it speaks to the Buddha... Um, Siddhartha Gautama, whatever you call him, that when a Buddha moves through the world, um, what allows them to move in the same way that allows a bird to fly with two wings is one, the activity of wisdom or the knowing heart that sees all things truly as they are. And that's partly what I think the instruction in the equanimity meditation is very much a practice of wisdom. And the other is the motivation or the movement, the natural hearts entering into the world of compassion and with compassion. In a sense, if one were to sum up all of spiritual life, and I think for us at Spirit Rock Center, as it's gradually growing, um, the essence of what we're doing is as simple as breathing in and breathing out. In a way, breathing in and quieting oneself to be here and see what is true, to to rest in what is true, and then breathing out, which is to extend that or connect that knowing um, to all of life, which is what supports us, what we inter-be with, what we inter-are with. So compassion as the fourth of these divine abodes, the dwelling places of the heart, is that which connects us from a place of knowing back into the world and life. Once on a preparation to a great holiday, 
Um, a Hasidic rabbi came home from the house of prayer with weary steps, and his wife greeted him and said, What made you so tired, Rebbe? And he said, It was the sermon. I had to speak of the poor and their many needs for the coming holiday season. Bread and wine, all the necessities, everything is so terribly costly this year. And what did you accomplish with your sermon, his wife went on. Half of what is needed, he answered. You see, the poor are now ready to take. As for the other half, whether those who have are ready to give, I don't know about that yet. Compassion. And in a certain way, um, we are both of those. We are that which gives and that which receives. And only to the extent that we can receive can we give. And only to the extent that we can give do we truly receive. Now it's said that uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion, who is Tara in the uh, Vajrayana tradition, Kuan Yin, the feminine form of um, Avalokiteshvara. If you look over on the wall here to your right, there's a great big this great big painting which comes from a temple in Ladakh, in the Himalayas, is of the um, goddess of compassion. And it shows her in this particular form with 1,000 um, hands and arms and 1,000 pairs of eyes. Um, my daughter came and counted them one day to make sure they were all there. Um, And what this is, this is an archetypal representation, a universal representation of that place in us that sees the suffering of the world and would reach our hands out, would see in every direction and then extend our heart through our hands to hold, to touch, to bring mercy or caring to the sorrows of the world. And it's said that the goddess of mercy, Tara, in the Buddhist tradition, arose after the Buddha was seated in the place of enlightenment and awakened and saw the possibility of the complete freedom of heart and being in the world, looked out and saw that, and was utterly free and began to teach and bring that sense of freedom in every dimension. And then after he had done so for a while, he sat again and looked around the world and saw yet still huge numbers of beings who, wanting happiness, engaged often in the very things that created more suffering. Everyone wants happiness in their way, and yet out of confusion and ignorance and, and not knowing, these beings in every realm that he saw were doing the things that were sowing the seeds of pain or suffering. And being unable to help them all, two cheers, tears rolled down the cheeks of the Buddha. And as the tears rolled down his cheeks, they took life and took form, um, feminine form, as, as the goddess of compassion, Tara, white Tara and green Tara. I remember seeing Karmapa, one of the greatest of the uh, Tibetan lamas, the head of the uh, Kagyu sect of Tibetan Buddhism, um, who would do this ceremony of embodying the Buddha of mercy or the Bodhisattva of mercy and place on his head this black crown as a king that was given to him more than a thousand years ago by one of the emperors of China. 
this is now the 16th karmapa, I guess it was given to the third karmapa or something like that. Anyway, he kept it over these lifetimes. And uh, there would be this big fanfare of Tibetan trumpets and cymbals and chanting. Um, and Karmapa, who was a very, um, very kind of easygoing figure in many ways, would sit on the throne after all of that and open the box, that this special case that carried the crown, and take out a crystal rosary and place it on his head and do 108 uh, chants of compassion for all beings of the world with his crystal rosary. And his whole being would change for that time. Um, and he had the saddest expression that you could imagine on his face, the sorrow of seeing the sorrows of the world and really letting it touch the heart. And the tears that came from that and then the natural movement of mercy. Because life lives on life, we are all connected to one another and we live on the lives of others. We're part of this cycling of life. We know that it's true. And so when we forget that, we can kind of feel separate and fight one another for our share. And when we remember, we can feed one another. Compassion then is this mercy for the struggles of life that we all must experience in our own way. And it's really the finding of a freedom of heart, a kindness, even in the midst of difficulty. Anybody not have difficulty in your life? Raise your hand. Not have struggles? I just want to make sure we're all talking the same language here. Okay. I remember being in India um, with the Dalai Lama for a series of meetings, kind of Buddhist teacher meetings. And um, he would meet with us um, from 10 to 12 and then 2 to f- or 1 to th- 4 or 2 to 4 in the afternoon. And before he met with uh, the group of Buddhist teachers that were having this conference together this particular time, he would, after doing his morning prayers and meditations for however many hours, um, he was first meeting with refugees who came out of Tibet. And he would personally try to greet each person who walked over the mountains, over the Himalayas, to escape from the um, communist Chinese army in Tibet. Um, he would try and meet them. And the stories that he heard, and one sometimes would tell, were unbelievable, staggering. And the kind of pain of people being tortured and imprisoned and all those kinds of things. And then walking, people would come over the mountains and you see they'd tied rags to their feet. They didn't even have shoes. And someone asked him in the course of this time, because he would do that and then he would come out and he would meet with us and he was happy. He would laugh and this tremendous joy would come out of him anyway. And they said, well, don't you hate the, uh, the Chinese army for what they've done? And he says, no. He said they've, they've destroyed our monasteries and, you know, destroyed the lives of so many people that I love and destroyed our culture. He said they've taken away so much. Why should I let them take away my peace of mind? So I'd like us to start with a little bit of a chant as we begin this part of the afternoon and some sitting. And the chant is one of, we'll work with several chants. This is one of the universal chants or or mantras or prayers for compassion. And it's found throughout um, Asia, particularly in the Himalayas. It's a Sanskrit chant. 
um, the chant of compassion. And if you go into the mountains in the Himalayas, you see it carved on the rocks and on the uh, and painted on the walls and carved out of stone into the walls of monasteries. The chant is Om O M Om Mani M A N I Padme P A D M E Hum H U M Hum. And the meaning Om is kind of the universal sound. And Mani Padme uh, means the jewel is in the lotus. and has a lot of different meanings, but one simple one is that the jewel of the mind rests in the lotus of the heart, that our awareness, our knowing, all the things that we conceive and the wisdom that comes to us rests in the heart of compassion. Our life rests in the heart of compassion. And then whom is kind of an exclamation, a kind of emphasis. Um, And one of the things you can know if you ever chant this to yourself or with other people is that there is never a time that you can chant Om Mani Padme Hum that there won't be company of others chanting with you at any time, day or night. You can go to the great temple in Bodh Gaya where the Bodhi tree that the Buddha supposedly sat under is and you'll see day and, day and night people with um, their prostration boards, Tibetans and Ladakhis and so forth, um, doing a hundred thousand or a million bows and chanting Om Mani Padme Hum. You can go to the great monasteries in the morning or in the evening and have people chanting it. So when we chant together, we're simply joining a sound of uh, compassion or mercy that is always being... Uh, resonant in the world. And if you go to the great temples, there are these prayer wheels. And inside the prayer wheels are written, Om Mani Padme Hum, one million or ten million times. And then someone is turning these great prayer wheels almost all the time so that they send out the prayers of mercy. So we'll start with that. We'll chant and then we'll sit for a few minutes um, just reconnecting in the stillness with our hearts. Om Mani Padme Hum Om Mani Padme we chant it now, as you say it, try to picture or imagine as you chant it that you could send the energy of this prayer or mantra of compassion to someone you know or some place or some circumstances um, where compassion could hold the struggles, whether it's to the firefighters and the people who lost their homes in Inverness or whether it is to Sarajevo and Bosnia or wherever it might be, you can chant and as you do, let or to someone that you love and care for who struggles, 
Um, let the energy of the heart of compassion ride with the chant in your mind and in your heart to touch that place or those people. Om Mani Padme Just om.
Just sit. Let your breath breathe softly in the silence. Let it breathe in and out of the chest or the heart, easily and gently. And with each breath, gently letting yourself feel or sense the spirit of loving kindness, of peace, of joy that has been growing over this weekend. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.